Right, so I want to read from the second of Kings chapter 5. This is the story of a Gentile, that's someone who wasn't a Jew, called Naaman, who is a Syrian and he's the commander of the army, and that army keeps going and attacking Israel, but he's a leper. And a little girl from Israel has been taken captive into Syria and ended up the servant girl for Naaman's wife. And she says, if only my master could go to the prophet in Israel, Elisha, he'd cure him of his leprosy. And so he does go, but he's told to go and dip seven times in Jordan. He doesn't want to do that. He wants to have a fancy, fancy sort of uh, baptism, if you like. And that doesn't work out. But then he humbles himself and does it, and he becomes like a little child. Well, let's read the story. Let's just read the first six verses. Now, who, who's got a loud voice and can, can read half straight? So, go and count. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and humble. Because my fighting Yoel at the victory to Syria's way up of the Syria, he was also a mighty man of Aria, but he was a leper. Syria had gone out in complaints and had brought away captive out of the line of Israel, a little maiden. And she waited on Naaman's wife. Thanks, Cam. So, the Bible is true, right? And these things really happened. There was a Naaman, there was a little girl who, a little Hebrew girl who was taken into captivity. This, this all happened. But you see the contrast. There's Naaman, who is this very powerful man, who's very famous and well known, but he also has a master, you see. His master, verse 1, was the king of Syria. And then you've got this female, anonymous, we don't even know her name, this little girl, who's also got a master or a mistress. And the little anonymous girl ends up saving the big powerful man. And you see, this is a theme of God's dealings with, with us, that it is the anonymous small people who are used. And we think, but who am I? Who am I? I'm a nobody. I'm an obscure little person. But that's the thing, that God uses us. That God actually likes this. This is his style. To pick up the small insignificant person and, as Paul says, and bring down the mighty. Okay? So, when Naaman is cured, we're going to read that, I haven't read it yet, going to read it later, he dips in the River Jordan and... He, his skin turns into the skin of a little child. So he becomes a bit like her, the little child. You see, it's beautiful the way it's worked out. When you read it and reread it, you see how beautiful the whole plan is of salvation. So she says to her mistress, I wish that my Lord would visit the prophet who's in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus talks about this and he says, in those days, there were many lepers in Israel, but none of them, was, none of them were cured, only Naaman. 
In other words, she had never seen anybody cured of leprosy, but she believed that she, that, that Elisha could cure her master. Now, let's get real about this. She was a little girl when she was taken captive. You see, verse 2, the Syrians had gone out in companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little girl, a little maiden. Now, what happened then is like what happens, I'm afraid, in warfare today in many, many places. The Syrians, led by Naaman, who was a general, would have gone in there, killed her older brothers, killed her parents, and taken her as the little girl with them. For sure, although it doesn't say it, for sure she was sexually abused. For sure. That's how it was. How it is today in warfare. So I have no doubt that's what happened to her. And then, well, she ends up being the servant girl of the general's wife. So Naaman would have been to her the figurehead of everything that she hated. That you Syrians, the Syrian military, are the people who killed my brothers, killed my mum and dad, wrecked my life, took me out of my little village in Israel, raped me and all the rest of it, and yet <clears throat> she has this great interest in, in healing him. You also ask yourself, what did she know about God? Probably not much, because most of the Israelites were worshipping Baal at that time, but alright, she had some sense of the one true God. Uh, but she'd been taken away in the captivity when she was very young. There was no one back in Syria to tell her about the one true God. They all worshipped idols. So you think, well, what did she know? Not very much. But from that, she had gone on to believe in grace. Now, I talked about grace last time. That grace is a pure gift that God shows this to us and we show it to other people. And I said last week that it's very difficult to know grace because it's outside our human experience. Every relationship that we enter into or that people enter into, nations or whatever, there is always this what's in it for me. You know, when America gives aid to Ukraine or to some other country or whatever, in Africa or whatever, yeah, this is not a pure gift there's the expectation of something back, whatever they want. Any relationship that you go into, no matter how pure you think you are, there is subconsciously, under the level of consciousness, there is that sense, what is in it for me? I mean, from our first struggling breaths in this world, when we were first born, it was all about me. I need to breathe. I need to eat so I shall, I shall scream and cry. It was all about me. That is how it is. That is what it is to be human. And yet God's gift of grace is, look, I just want to give this to you because I love you. And for no other reason. And, you see, she was starting to get into that. That she who had been abused, she who had lost everything, and Naaman is like the figurehead of everything that she hated and that had damaged her, she wished him well. And she wanted him to be cured. So that's the, the power of just a little bit of belief. As Jesus said, the gospel is a seed. 
it starts very small, but it grows into something massive. Now the seed, the Lord says in the parable of the sower, the seed is the word of God. That bit by bit, that seed, that if you read or listen to the Bible, that seed that's coming to you grows <coughs> into, some, <coughs> into something huge, something beautiful. But it's got that little small belief, uh, that small beginning. Right, so this is what she says. And then verse 4, someone, someone went in and told his Lord, so the girl who is from the land of Israel said this. Someone. Again, it's another anonymous servant. Well, Naaman, at very least, listened to his wife. Don't forget in those days women were like third-class citizens and a great man didn't listen to his wife. Well, he did. And more so, he listened to the voice of this little servant girl. So somewhere in this great man, there is the voice of conscience and there is a sort of humility. Now when you meet rich and powerful people, it's easy to think they are so up themselves, they are so lost. But you know, in every human being, be it the smallest, the greatest or whatever, there is that gap, there's that hole in your heart that will always be the voice of conscience. And as Hannah was saying about surrender, that is just the right word that we are to surrender to that call. That is what we're called to do, to surrender to that call. And all the time you resist it and run away from it, it's, it's a miserable experience. So, <clears throat> this Naaman goes and he takes with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of clothing. So he is from the typical, we could say, religious mindset that says, I can buy healing. And just a few chapters earlier, you happen to read that the whole of Samaria, that's this capital city, the land on which it was built, had been sold for two talents of silver. Well, he has ten, ten talents of silver and 6,000 pieces of gold. Now, if you try to turn this into what we're used to, this is a few billion pounds mm -hmm. in cash. And that's how much he values his healing. So he thinks, I can buy it. I can get it in my own strength. <clears throat> and that is played on. That, that's a natural human thing. It's played on by so many religions, from Catholics to Protestants, to, to Pentecostals, to everybody. Give me your money and I'll heal you. I mean, it's not said so crudely, but it is basically the sort of message. And this guy has got that idea. So he comes to the king of Israel, assuming that, well, the king knows, the king knows where the prophet is, so he can cure, can cure me. Right, so let's read on, see what happens. Right, can somebody, can somebody else like to go on from read, read what's here? Glasses. Debbie hasn't got her glasses. When oh, the king of mm -hmm. Israel had read the letter, he told his clothes and said, I am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends to me to heal a man. 
What should he have been thinking? He should have thought, well, I guess Elisha could. You see the contrast between this great king of Israel and the little servant girl. He says, oh yeah, I'm sure that Elisha, the prophet, can heal of leprosy. But the king of Israel says, oh, no one can do that. Huh? You're crazy. So again, you see the small and the great contrasted. <laughs> that this... Uh, servant girl has got more faith and more understanding than this great king of Israel. Right, so when Elisha the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes he said to the king saying why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariots and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away and said, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of Yahweh his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Aren't Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Right, so, Naaman, with all his money and his horses and chariots, comes and stands outside the door of Elisha. Knocks on the door. Ding dong. Elisha does not come out to meet him. He sends a messenger to him and says, go and dip in the Jordan seven times. And you think, why doesn't he open the door to him? Why doesn't he talk to him? Now the Jordan River is about 15 miles from Samaria where Elisha's house was. And he says, just send him a message, tell him to go to the Jordan and dip himself and wash himself seven times and he'll be good. Doesn't come out to see him. And you scratch your head and you wonder why. Why, why, why that style? Why not, you know? And of course, Naaman is annoyed. Because he thinks, but I thought a man of God is supposed to come out to me and put his hands upon me and uh, I pay all the money and there's the big razzmatazz and da-da-da, I'm cured. What? And he's annoyed about that. I keep saying that we should be about spirituality, not religion. And you see this here, don't you, very clearly. That Naaman is on the side of religion. I expect the man of God to put his hand upon me uh, where, where the uh, pain is or where the boil is or whatever and ooh, he's gone. He doesn't. Elisha sends a messenger and it was if you like a distance healing. He says you go 15 miles and dip yourself in the river Jordan and you get cured. He doesn't even say and come back and see me. He says that's what I'm telling you and go. You know? For one thing you see that for Elisha it was not it, it was not all about it was not all about me it was like I want to do God's work and I don't need to be around and I think that it's the same 
when we saw last week how he cures, sorry, how he, uh, he does a miracle for the widow. This widow comes to him and says, I've got huge debts and the creditor has come to me and said, give me your two sons, sell them into slavery. And Elisha says, well, what have you got at home? And she says, I've got a pot of oil. And he says, go and borrow as many pots as you can, go inside your house, shut the door on you and your sons, pour out the oil into all the containers you've borrowed, go and sell it and you can live and pay your debt. And that's what happens. But the point is, he said to her, shut the door on you and your sons. In other words, Elisha wasn't there. He wasn't present. It wasn't that there he was in the house and da 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 he does this miracle and oh wow, yeah, the man of God made the oil multiply. And I suggested that that was because God wants personal relationship with you. Shut your door and behind closed doors, not with anybody watching you, you have your relationship with God. And it's the same here. He says to Naaman, through a messenger, go to the river Jordan, dip yourself seven times and you'll get, uh, you'll get cured. In other words, you, my friend, standing in that water will experience God and experience his spirit in your life. Not in a religious way. Not with me standing over you, blah, blah, blah. And this is what God wants. He wants personal relationship with him. And so we ask ourselves then, well, what does that mean in, in practice? Well, it means that you read the Bible for yourself. It means that who you are when nobody's watching is critically important. What you look at on your phone and what you listen to in your audio, in your video choices, this is what matters. This is what God is looking at. It's who you are when no one's looking. How much time do you spend every day praying? Well, nobody knows that. Only God and yourself. And it's all about habits. Now, it's a good thing to go to church. But the thing is that it can become, that's all. I went to church, I'm a good guy. I've done my religious bit. But you see, it's about personal relationship with God. And you also ask yourself why he has to dip himself seven times. Why not just once? Why seven times? Well, that's <clears throat> rather like various other questions <clears throat> as to, for example, when Elijah prays for rain to come on the top of Mount Carmel, he prays seven times. <coughs> First time he prays and he sends his messenger and he says, go and see if there's a cloud coming. The cloud's got rain on it. He prays, the messenger goes, no, there's no cloud. Prays a second time, messenger goes, uh, sorry, the servant goes, see if there's a cloud coming, no cloud. Third time, fourth time. And only the seventh time did the cloud come. So prayer is not answered immediately. And you may say, well, why is that? Is God like just tough? Is God playing hard to get? Why is prayer not answered immediately? Well, actually, when Elisha raises <clears throat> that woman's son to life again, earlier in, the, uh, in this book, it's the same. He tries to raise, to resurrect the child using a, a staff, putting a staff on the child's face, that doesn't work. He lays on the child, that doesn't work, then he prays again, and then finally the child is resurrected. And you think, why? Why? Why, why does God drag it out? 
Well, I think it's because God is not an ATM. <clears throat> you do not just come to God and, um, you know, tap in a code and out jumps your banknotes. If that is how God were, well, it wouldn't be a great experience for us because God would just be like a rich sort of sugar daddy who, um, <clears throat> you know, rocks up with everything, etc. There's no relationship there. But the fact that God works in the way that he does, whereby we have to keep on praying, yes, that is what changes things. That is where you get intimacy with God. That is where you get relationship with him. And it's not name it and claim it. It just isn't that. It is a case of relationship between God and yourself. Well, he doesn't want to do this, does he? He says, but it's far greater. The the borders of Damascus are far nicer than this River Jordan. I told you a couple of weeks ago I was in Israel baptising people in the River Jordan. And it is not a big river. It is pretty well a stream. And in the summer you can actually walk from one side of it to the other without swimming. It's that small. So to go and dip seven times in it, no. What's that, what good's that going to do? And you can see what I'm coming. But this, although this wasn't Christian baptism, it's getting towards it. This is looking forward to baptism. People say, oh, why should I do that? You know? Why should I be baptized? I was baptised in a bathtub in someone's house many years ago. In Lee Green, just out of Lurchin there. You know, like, why? Oh, that's bizarre. You know, when we went down to the sea with Becky, went in the water. Excellent, it was brilliant. It was, it was brilliant in God's eyes, but in the eyes of the world, that's completely crazy that a group of people drive down from Croydon to Worthing and a woman goes into the, uh, a woman just go, goes into the water and comes out again. Or two nice ladies come round with their adult children to our house in Croydon and we get kids paddling Paul and baptising. In the eyes of the world, that's, that's crazy. But you see how similar it is. <clears throat> well, what's Naaman going to do? He's angry. And anger always is connected with, with pride. He's expecting the big religious experience and he's got a few billion pounds in gold and silver and that doesn't appear to be interesting to Elisha. And he's expecting the big religious experience and his pride is hurt and so he's angry. Now you read of people being sent on anger management courses. But actually the Bible's anger management course is simply this, to recognise that you are proud. If you humble yourself, you get over your anger. It's as simple as that. Um, You can have your anger management courses all you want, but the bottom line is be humble. Okay, so, is he going to humble himself or not? His servants came here and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had asked you to do some great thing when you had done it, how much rather then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So again, he listens to his servants. You see how the story develops. That he first of all listened to his wife, he listened to the little servant girl, 
And now again, he listens to his servants. This is a big guy. So he's being progressively humbled. And he even says, verse 14, he went down into the Jordan. Now the word Jordan means that which brings down. Because the river Jordan flows from north to south, from the high mountains in the north of Israel, all the way down to the Dead Sea, which is below sea level. Right? So, the river Jordan, Jordan means that which brings down. So you see how he's being progressively humbled. Now, Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that you might be exalted in due time. So, when Jesus comes, we're going to be resurrected. We're going to be exalted. But now, you've got to be progressively humbled. Now, I accept it's impossible to attach meaning to event in life. That is to say, oh yes, I know why that happened. It was because of this, and that happened because of that. No, life is a bit of a mystery when you look at all the events that make it up. But in the bigger picture, <coughs> the game plan of God is to bring you down. Not in a nasty way, but to bring you down, so that you might be lifted up. It's why as we all get older, and we all get older, we're all getting older here, right? Your faculties start to go. <coughs> your physical strength, your mind, is no longer as clear and sharp as it was when you were young. You're no longer sick. Good looking. And, uh, <coughs> well, some of us hold out, but, uh, sure, but, you know, generally we all, you know, it comes to us all, I'm afraid. Um, you ask in the bigger picture, why did God structure life like that? And I think it's to humble you. So that by the time, frankly, you're facing your growth plates, by the, by the time you're at the end, you're humbled. Now, of course, some people fight against it. Get angry. But the bigger picture is to humble you. And also, why does life go wrong at times? Why, for example, do you sometimes make a mistake in something you're really good at? For example, you might be a very good house painter but you can't spill a load of paint on, on the wall, on someone else's wall. Why do, you, why do we make mistakes in something that we're normally very good at? Why do we make mistakes like that? Because in the bigger picture, God is humbling us. Why does life not work out? Not because you're an idiot, but because God is humbling you. Now, once you get with it, it becomes sort of a race to the bottom, almost. You know, the, the idea that, you know, I shall dress myself and be, you know, wonderful and fantastic and the rest of it. <clears throat> Have a great, cool life all the days of my life. Okay, really? That is not how it is. The best is ahead. It's not all in this life. Now is the time to come down. That you might be lifted up. Now, this, of course, is not what people want to hear. They want to be told that you can have a fantastic exaltation in this life. This is your month of exaltation and you shall be lifted up above all, all men. Well, no, hopefully not. Because you can't have it now and then. Right, so, where are we up to? <laughs> yeah, he goes down, dips himself seven times, and this flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. Well, as I say, this is not Christian baptism. <clears throat> Jesus was not around at this time, had not died and resurrected. Because baptism means you connect with his death when you go under the water and his resurrection as you come out of the water. This is not Christian baptism. 
Uh, but you can see that he's looking forward to it. And he comes out and he is born again. Because his flesh is like the flesh of a little child. And so the Lord says, John 3, unless a man is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. So, yes, you've got to be baptised in water. And if anyone not yet baptised, I mean, come and chat with me. We'll do it. Just into Jesus. But water baptism of itself, of course, is not going to save anyone. But the, the point is that he was baptised and then he was, as it were, born again. His flesh became like the flesh of a little child. Get some seats down here. <clears throat> so, that is what happens. You become a new person. You become as a child. You get another chance. In the sense that you become you. You are born again. And you start to look at life through a new pair of eyes. And of course you're growing. You are a child, spiritually. But you are growing. It is just the beginning. People say, I don't know if I'm ready to be baptised. Well, <laughs> no one is. But it is a beginning and not an end. That's the point. So, the whole idea of being born again means to be given his spirit, to be given his pair of eyes, a new psychology, a new worldview, a new way of looking at life, no matter how you want to put it. The love of God, Paul says, Romans 5, 5, is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. Now, the heart is the mind. And we are given that new mind, that new way of thinking. So it is not, in my opinion, so much about razzmatazz and external things, but that deep internal transformation. That I see things differently now. That I'm no longer hurt. If I am betrayed, if I am deceived, if I am lied to, if whatever, because I've got someone. I've got him. And that, that is really how it is. Now, verse 6 15. He returned to the man of God, <clears throat> he and all his companies, horses and chariots, and stood before him and he said, See now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore, please take a gift from your servant. He's got a couple of billion in cash. You know, thousands of gold pieces. But he said, As Yahweh lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. He urged him to take it, but he refused. Now, there's a lot of people who like to call themselves man of God. Really important. If you go to any of them and say, Oh, you know, you healed me. Would you like a load of money? Oh, yes, thank you. Now, this is a sign, in my opinion, of a man of God that he says, No, I don't know. No, I'm not here. I'm not into it for that. He turns it down. So, he says, okay, Naaman said, if not then, please let two mules burden of earth be given to your servant. For your servant will from now on offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice to other gods, but to Yahweh. Well, why does he want, he's got obviously a load of donkeys and stuff with him, and he's like, I want two of my donkeys to have packs of Israelite Israeli soil put on them. You think, well, what's he on that for? Well, because he says, I'm only going to sacrifice to Yahweh. Now, in the law of Moses, God says, when you make me an altar, don't make a fancy one, make it of raw stone, uncut stone, just stones kicked together, or of earth. 
The idea is we are made of dust and unto dust we shall return. And it is on the basis of us as dust that we offer to God. That it is not a question of dressing yourself up and, you know, making yourself look beautiful. I went, people go to the Vatican in Rome and come back to, oh, it was gorgeous. Oh, it was all covered in gold and diamonds. Well, I don't get that. I don't, I don't get it. Um, because I don't see that that's what God wants. He said, make me an, al- an altar of earth, of soil, just dust like you are. And on that, offer to me. And so that is what Naaman got. Now, he's a big man. He's a very wealthy guy with literally billions in cash, in gold and silver. And he, well, he talks to Elisha and says, I am your servant. He's come right down. Come right down. And he says, all I want to do is a sacrifice to your God, the one true God when I get back to Syria. Which would have been very difficult because he was the captain, the general of the Syrian army and the Syrian army were attacking Israel. And he has become, if you like a Christian, a believer in the God of Israel. So we all tend to think, ah, such and such person isn't interested in the gospel. No point talking to her, she's not interested, oh don't talk to him, he's totally, he's not interested. But you see, everybody has got that hole in their heart that only Jesus can fill. And so this is really how it is. It is really and truly how it is. That we are wanted by God, all of us. And when you get the courage to talk to somebody, about the gospel there's something in them that is is open to it even though there may be all this bravado about I'm an atheist, I don't do religion all that sort of stuff underneath all that bravado there is the little voice of conscience and the little child in everybody even in the general of the army of Syria well then he says Verse 18, in this thing may Yahweh pardon your servant. So Yahweh just means, means God, the true God. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon, that's an idol, to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, may Yahweh pardon your servant in this thing. Elisha said to him, go in peace. Now, what he's saying is that I accept Yahweh, that's the one true God. Uh, but because I live in Syria and because I'm a big guy and I'm a general we all have to go into the temple of women and bow before the idol is it okay? can you forgive me? and you ask yourself well should he have done that? well ideally no you might remember the story in Daniel where Daniel's got three friends so Nebuchadnezzar puts his big gold statue up and he says everyone's got to bow down and worship the idol and if you don't you're going to go to the fiery furnace everybody bows down to it but the three Jews Daniel's friends stand up and so he says right you are going into the fiery furnace you're going to be destroyed and you think to yourself well yeah we should stand up stand up for Jesus 
and also slightly, well, how can I put it, not great, that Naaman says, look, I'm going to sin, but can you forgive me in advance? (laughs) It's okay to sin and then say, oh God, like I'm really sorry, God forgive me. There's another thing to sort of make a deal with God and say, look God, I'm going to sin in this way and I'm going to repetitively sin in this way. I'm thinking, you're going to scribble it for me? It's a little bit not okay. But I understand he was in a difficult position. And so Elisha has to give an answer, but he doesn't say yes or no. He says, go in peace. Well, if he'd have said, no, that's not okay. You've got to stand up and be counted, man, and you've got to take the bullet, you've got to take death. If that's what it means to be a Christian, to be a believer, you've got to take it, mate. And if you don't take it, then you're fake. You see, if he'd have said, no, that's not okay, that's what he'd have been saying. But we know that Jesus is the sinner's friend. That God and Jesus are not simply, as it were, the, the God of the steel willed. Because who's got a steel will? None of us have got that steel in our soul. We've got that steel will. But I shall take whatever comes. We, we don't have that. If he'd have said, oh yeah, that's just fine, Naaman, no worries. Well, we would have all gone away from the story thinking, ah oh, yeah, well when the going gets tough as a Christian, that's okay. I haven't got to be that committed. Yeah, Naaman, the soul is okay. That's good. You see, we can't, we can't just take it like that, that yes or no. But what he says is very profound. Go in peace. Now, every time, well, pretty well every time in the Bible you read about peace, it refers to the peace with God that comes from forgiveness. Now Paul says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That because of his blood, we have peace. So, I think what he's saying is, look, okay, you've asked for forgiveness in advance over something that you're going to do repetitively in the future. He's basically saying, you can have peace. God will forgive you. So, again I say, he says, in the future, if I bow down to women, the God women, if I worship women, even though I worship Yahweh, is that okay? And Elisha doesn't give him a yes or no. Let me repeat it. If he'd have said, no, you've got to stand up and be counted, well, okay, then God becomes only for the steel-willed and the self-sacrificial and the wonderful and all the rest of it. Sure, those people are great. But we are not all like that. In fact, the majority are. If he had said, uh, yes, that's okay, you can worship God and you can worship women, well, we would have all thought, okay, that's great. I can be a Christian and also believe and act as I want. That's fine. Whereas Jesus says, you can't serve God and mammon. You have to choose. So he couldn't say no, he couldn't say yes, but he says go in peace. And I said, again, I repeat, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace refers to forgiveness. So he is saying, look here, you are forgiven. It is okay. And that is what I want to leave with you, that it is okay. We are forgiven. People come to me and say, yeah, I'd like to be baptised, but you see, 
I am an alcoholic, I am a drug addict, I am this, that or the other, I am addicted to porn, I am addicted to all sorts of things. What am I supposed to say to them? Oh no mate, you, you've got to get straight, you've got to get clean, and then God's interested. Oh, get real? I mean, okay, so you kick whatever bad habit you've got, and if you're a humble person, you then realise, oh whoops, and what about this? Oh whoops, and what about that? And about that. I always say, yes, right now, go for it, and go in peace. I can't say, oh, that's fine. You're hooked on this, that, or the other. Oh, well, do carry on, that's fine. No. And I also can't say, yeah, well, unless you quit that, my friend, yeah, God's got no time for you. can't say that. So it's just go in peace. Look, go onwards in your life. No matter how you are, where you are, whatever sin you're into, whatever, whatever. But if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. And you can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, even though you are not perfect. And again, with Naaman, I would like to say, well, what did Naaman know about God? And I guess it wasn't much. He simply had heard, via this servant girl, that there's a prophet in Israel who can forgive you. And he goes there with all his money thinking he can buy it and there's going to be a great ceremony and there isn't anything of the sort and he goes eventually humbles himself and does it becomes as it were born again but what did he know in terms of you know bullet points information fact probably very little but again it is the hole in the heart that was appealed to. And he made that movement toward God. And God accepted that. Now, of course, it's just a beginning. I understand. So, we come then closer to the breaking of bread, where we are here to remember Jesus. We are here to remember what he did for us. We're here to celebrate that peace with God which we can have through Jesus. So Paul says, the Lord Jesus in the night he was betrayed took bread. When he gave him thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, this do in memory of me. In the same manner also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, this do as often as you drink it in memory of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, by taking this, we are saying, yes, I want to be associated with Jesus, with his body, with his blood. I want to have that peace with God. So the like name, we can go on our way, although our way for all of us is not perfect, but knowing that I have got peace with God, and that is all dealt with. Now, I wonder, oh, Hannah, while you're on your feet, could, could you just distribute the, um, the grape juice glasses, please? Yeah. Yeah, Ka- yeah, Karen, yeah, if you could do that, thank you. So, thank you. So, this is the symbol of the blood of Jesus. <clears throat> and it's a bit like baptism, but in baptism you say, yes, I want to be baptised into the body of Jesus. And it's the same with this. It's a little sign 
that I want to be part of the body of Jesus. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, again we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for Jesus and for that peace with you that is possible in him. We do thank you, Father, for the bread as the symbol of his body and the cup as the symbol of his blood. And we do really pray, Father, with all our heart, soul and mind that we might really be part of him and that we will have peace with you and that we can go on our way, sinners that we are, at peace with you, challenged to be better but comforted that we are with you and walk at peace with you. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Amen. Right, well, the, um, the roast should soon be coming and um, maybe while we're all sitting down we could um, just give thanks for the, um, for the food. Um, Maybe Sean, could you give us a prayer for the um, for the food? Yeah. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you for the food that's coming today, and we thank you for the service that our dear pastor has, has taught us. We give thanks and praise for the week ahead, and we pray a blessing on everybody today in this morning church. In the name of Jesus Christ, all good people here say Amen. Amen. Amen.